You talk about a face made for radio. <laughs> that's, that's really embarrassing. <laughs> I didn't realize I was going bald either. Uh, okay, I play a lot of golf, and uh, this is like being on the first tee in a golf tournament where you're just hoping to get the golf ball airborne. Uh, so bear with me as we, as we uh, look into... Uh, one of David's psalms, Psalm 32. Uh, I became a Christian when I was 14 years old, and uh, that was a long time ago. Uh, it's hard to believe I'm as old as I am. Uh, if I'd known I was going to live this long, I probably would have taken better care of myself. But uh, it is what it is, and you know that when you're younger, but you, you, you hear that when you're younger, but you don't do as good a job uh, taking care of yourself. But when I was 14, I became a Christian. And uh, we were in another church at that point in my life. Um, and uh, in that other church, we did a lot of things that I didn't really understand uh, before I was a Christian. I knew there were people in the church who loved Jesus. And I knew that uh, uh, the church was a fun place to be. And we had some great sports teams. And, and I thought I was an athlete, so I liked being there in that church. And I remember my first exposure to uh, somebody that I thought was different as a Christian was uh, a lady that I had in my sixth grade boys Sunday school class. She was a Sunday school teacher uh, for the all boys class. I haven't seen her since, don't know where she is to this day, but her name was Mrs. Sullivan. And when Mrs. Sullivan talked about the Bible, it was like it came alive. You know, I know that's not true. I know the Bible's alive. It made Miss Sullivan alive. But she actually believed it and thought it was true. And so when she taught it, there was something different about the way that she taught that, that made me uh, interested in what was going on in the Scriptures uh, her favorite stories were about John the Baptist. But in that church, uh, we went through all the things that you had to do. Uh, we were a very uh, religious family, I'd say, at that point in our lives because we were at church every Sunday. And uh, one of the things that we often did that I didn't quite understand is, is we would uh, uh, say the Apostles' Creed. Does anybody remember the Apostles' Creed? Well, I just happened to have it with me today on the screen here, and I thought it might be good for us to go through the Apostles' Creed, before we get into the book of Psalms. Let's say that together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, isn't that good? That's good stuff right there. That's, uh, that's something that the apostles... Uh, that's, basically, it's a summary of the apostles' teachings. They didn't necessarily write it, although some people think they might have. But it is a summary of what you'd find in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It starts kind of in a progressive order with God and ends all the way in, in eternity where, where we plan to spend our lives. But it's a story that's, uh, that talks about um, uh, several different doctrinal positions that would be, I think it would be a lot of fun to, to take that and to study that and to actually teach it sometime. Maybe we can do that in a couple of years um, when I get to preach again. So, uh, <laughs> hopefully. 
So um, one of the things that I do see in that, that uh, Apostles' Creed is, is that, that uh, we're supposed to believe these things because these are the teachings of the church. The teachings of the apostle, they're all, apostles, they're all found in the scriptures. One of the things that we say that we believe according to the Apostles' Creed that you just said out loud is that you believe in the forgiveness of sins. Did you notice that? We all believe in the forgiveness of sins, uh, but I really wonder sometimes if we do believe in the forgiveness of sins. I'd also kind of wonder sometimes what we believe about how we actually are forgiven of our sins. Well, it's a good thing we're in the study of uh, the book of Psalms because Psalm 32 talks a little bit about the forgiveness of sins. So let's read Psalm 32 together. Follow along with me as we read the entire chapter, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and it did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and is sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you, Lord, that it pierces to the very divisions of our soul and spirit. We thank you for the word, Lord, that, it, uh, that as we're exposed to it, we can't hide. That we, uh, it penetrates to the very core of who we are and reveals so much about who we are. So, pro- Father, I pray that today, that as we look in your word, that, uh, that we would look into your word uh, to get a good picture of where we are and who we are and what you've done for us. We thank you, Lord, that you're, uh, the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word, it, it lasts forever. We're grateful for that. And we uh, thank you for this time we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Psalm 32. Last week we started Psalm 31. We'll talk about Psalm 31 in just a second. Psalm 32 is a penitential song. It's a song of David's. He wrote this song. David was the king. David wrote this song um, in, in a penitential way because he was sorry about some things that had happened in his life. Uh, it's, uh, it's the, the term maskil is used. It's called a maskil of David. And a maskil is simply a word that means 
it's, a, it's an instruction. These are instructions that David gives us. And he's give us, giving us some instructions that he's learned in the course of his life about what life, what's going on in life, about his own personal life. And so in Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1, the psalmist says, David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man uh, against the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no seat, deceit. Uh, so what David's saying basically is this. He's saying that, that uh, whereas last week when we talked about Psalm 1, Psalm 1, uh, Steve preached last week, did a great job with that. But basically, Steve said, uh, he said, uh, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the path of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight's in the law of the Lord. In his law he does meditate day and night. And he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of living water. What Steve preached about last week are the results of what's happening in these first two verses. Uh, what Steve preached about is uh, there's a happiness or a blessedness that comes from walking in the right relationship with Jesus Christ. These verses talk to us about how that happens. There's a blessedness to having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And how does that happen? Well, it says in verse 1, it says that our transgressions first are forgiven. What are transgressions? We'll spend just a minute on these because most of us understand transgressions and sin. Uh, we're very familiar with transgressions and sin. The word transgressions basically is, uh, those are the acts of rebellion against God. Those are knowing the right things to do and not doing those things. And so what the psalmist says, he says basically that uh, blessed is the one whose uh, transgressions are forgiven. When you've disobeyed God or been disobedient, it's a blessing to have God forgive your disobedience. He says that uh, happy is the one whose sins are covered. What are sins? The word sin in the Greek is a word that most of you guys I'm sure are familiar with. It's hamartia. It basically means to miss the mark. And it's the uh, uh, picture in your mind, an archer who's shooting an arrow at a target. And that misses the target. That's called sin. He missed the target he was shooting at. So sin is basically failure to hit the mark. Shooting at it, but not hitting the mark. In fact, some uh, commentators say that it's not like this uh, person actually took aim at the mark. It's like he shot the arrow in the opposite direction. That's what sin is. It's shooting an arrow in a way so as to miss the mark. The, the psalmist David says, Blessed is the man uh, whose sin is covered. In other words, it's, it's, it's okay. It's taken care of. I'm going to cover that sin. The third thing he says is, is, blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. What is iniquity? Iniquity is basically knowing that you've done the wrong things, knowing that you've sinned, knowing that you've transgressed, and feeling the weight of those transgressions and sin, the very weight of it, but knowing that that is covered. It's not going to be counted against you. Don't count that. Don't count that sin. Don't count that unrighteousness. Don't count that transgression. Because that trans transgression was counted towards someone else. It was counted against someone, someone else. And that person was Jesus Christ. And so what he did for us is he, he took on our sin. Our unrighteousness was counted to him. And his righteousness was counted to us as righteousness. But it says basically there's a happiness. There's a... There's a blessedness when we understand that our transgressions are forgiven, our sins are covered, 
that that iniquity, even the feeling, feeling of guilt, God has taken care of that and counted that to someone else. In fact, basically, when it gets to the, uh, the end of chapter 2, he says, in whose spirit there is no seat. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, that's it. I'm completely uncovered, God. You see it all. I'm hiding nothing. There's nothing I'm being deceptive about. It's all out in the open. You know, I remember years ago um, uh, <laughs> when I was uh, losing my hair. Some of you might uh, think that started when I was about five. But uh, it actually started in my 20s, and I didn't really want to lose my hair. It's not something that I ever thought would happen. But it did, and I'm okay with it now. I don't ever think about it now. But I remember in the transition period, and I see some of you guys going through that. Um, <laughs> I remember in the transition period, it was really hard because uh, I didn't want anybody to see that I was going bald. <laughs> okay? But they could see, believe me. And so I wouldn't get my hair wet, and I wouldn't get out in the wind. If I got out in the wind, I had my hair sprayed down so tight that I could have been out in a hurricane, and it would have been just like, like some other people's that we know um, and might be thinking of at this point. But I remember I finally got to a point where I said, I'm just going to take care of this, and I'm going to cut it all off so that I don't have to worry about this again. And I did. And you know what happened? It's very freeing to be bald. Very freeing. <laughs> Thank you, Roy. Roy understands that. I had a lot of, Damon understands that. There's a lot of us on staff like that. But, uh, but, but that's what David's doing right now is he's standing before God basically saying, that's it. That's all. I'm not going to hide this anymore. I'm not going to cloak this anymore. I stood before God and he looked right into who I am and saw me completely uncovered. And God says, you're forgiven. Your transgressions are covered. Your sin is covered. Don't worry about it. I'm going to count that to my, my account, not yours. David understood that. And yet when we get to verse 3, David's almost like he's reflecting on something that's happened in his life because he is. In verse 3 he says, I kept silent about my sins, and when I did, my bones wasted away. I groaned all day long. Night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Now, when you see the word selah in the scriptures, it's there, it's a musical term that basically means stop and pause for a moment. Do you see what's happened here in this text? David starts by talking about the blessings of forgiveness, the actual understanding and feeling the weight of his sins removed. And then as he's thinking about and reflecting upon what God's done in his life, this removal of sins, he kind of goes back to something that's happened that helped him learn or feel the forgiveness and weight of those sins being removed from his account. And he pauses just to think. And he does this, remember, because he's instructing us and he wants us to see something here. It may be something that we need to see this morning. It may be something that we've felt ourselves. It could be something that uh, we're dealing with even right now. But David stops for a minute to talk to us about a time in his life when he didn't feel happy. When he didn't feel God's forgiveness. When in fact he felt like his soul was drying up. And he was groaning all the days of his life. 
God was far from him in this time. And there's a pause there. The pause is intentional. It's a pause that uh, is there to give us pause. I was silent. How long was he silent? What does he mean by that? I kept silent. My bones wasted away. What's going on? What happened in David's life to keep him silent? Now, as we look at that word silent, silent means just exactly what you think it means. It means he wasn't saying anything. He wasn't talking. He wasn't talking to God in term, in outwardly, verbally. He wasn't talking to God inwardly. But the word silent also conveys the meaning of deaf. All right, he was deaf. He wasn't talking to God, and he wasn't listening to God. He wasn't hearing what God was saying in this time. And he says, when I was silent, when I wasn't talking to God, and when I wasn't listening to God, when I didn't hear God, my life was horrible. It was terrible. You know, if you go back all the way to the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, we're told that uh, you know, they had been naked all along, and all of a sudden they eat from this fruit that God's told them not to eat from, this tree that God's told them not to eat from. And uh, they realize they're naked, and they hide. You know, it's not like they weren't naked the day before, but they decide they're going to hide somehow from God. So they hide. They're, they're moving away from God. They realize there's something wrong. They move away from God. They hear God walking through the garden, and they hide. They hide. They're not listening. They don't want to hear. They don't want to listen to what God has to say. They don't want to face God. They don't want to talk to God. They're hiding from him. And this is what's going on in David's life. Something's happened in David's life. Something happened a while back to keep him from talking to God and to keep him from listening to God. It was something that created separation between him and God. You know, I don't know if you've ever felt that before. I don't know if you've ever felt like that before. Something bad was happening in his life. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever done something so horrible, so terrible, that you just wondered whether God could actually forgive you? So intentionally hurtful or wrong, failed miserably, to the point that you, uh, you were ashamed, that you hid, that you weren't listening, that you weren't speaking to God, because God was the last person that you wanted to uh, talk to. I remember one of those times in my life, and there have been many, not just a few, there have been many, I felt terrible. I'd failed miserably uh, in some way in my life. Come see me later, I'll tell you how, maybe. But uh, I'd failed. And I remember uh, it, was, uh, it was a weekend, and I uh, went to church the next day, and it was, uh, uh, I'd failed all day Saturday, and, and uh, knew it was very aware of my failure and my sin. Failure, a lot of times, just a way of us saying our sin. I'd sinned. And I remember walking into church the next Sunday morning, and I felt terrible. Last place I really wanted to be because I felt like everybody knew exactly what was going on in my life. You know, everybody knew what was happening in my life. I was a failure in my life. And I remember um, we walked in. I walked in. And I was late. Um, you know, I'm rarely late. I asked my family. But I was late. And uh, uh, we were singing a song. The song was uh, Before the Throne of God Above. You know that song? We sing it here sometimes. I love that song. It goes like this. I'm not going to sing it. Uh, but it says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within... Upward I look, 
and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the justified, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. And that was, that was a good message for me that morning. To walk into church that day uh, needing to know that God loved me and that God could forgive my sins. And I heard it in that song. And it was amazing, the peace that came into my life just from singing that and believing that that's true, that God does do that, that because of Jesus and what he's done, I can go to him. But I'll tell you, there are times when our sin keeps us from God. It keeps us from going to him, and that's what was going on in David's life. What kept him from running to God? What kept him from crying out to God? You know, uh, the, the, the key word uh, in the book of Proverbs, do you know what it is? You might say wisdom. If you said that, you're wrong, I think. I think the key word is listen. Listen. God says, he says, let the wise man hear and let him listen in Proverbs 1.6. He says in Proverbs 1.8, listen, my son, to your father's instruction. Listening, listening. There's something about when we're in sin that keeps us from doing that, isn't there? We don't want to be around God. We don't want to face God. We don't want to confess our sin. We don't want to bring that before him because there's something about us that tells us he's, he's going to punish us. He's not going to listen to us. It's going to hurt. David felt that way, but he kept silent. And I'm telling you, it wasn't the right choice. He kept silent about his sin. And when he did keep silent about his sin, it drained the very life out of him. You may have sin like that in your life right now. You may have things going on that nobody else knows about them, but you know about them. And it's affecting your life. It's sucking the life out of you. It's sucking the vitality of you because you won't deal with it. You won't deal with it. You push it away. You ignore it. You're not listening to God, and you're not willing to confess it to God as sin. And what's happening in your life right now is you're drying up and dying. And people around you see it, and they notice it just like they noticed it in David's life. He was groaning all day long. It's like the groaning is a word that's, uh, that uh, is used to talk about the way that animals make noise. He couldn't even utter uh, intelligent words. He just had groans all day long. His strength was drying up, and it shouldn't have been that way. But it was, and there's a pause. What had happened in David's life to get him to this point. Now, I don't want to ruin Psalm 51 because Kenan's going to preach that, but I am going to tell you a little. I mean, this is a spoiler alert. Uh, some bad things have happened in David's life, uh, and we're going to talk about a few of those things because he had done some stuff that's really embarrassing. In fact, it's so embarrassing that if I had been uh, the writer of the Bible, I would have left this story about, out about King David. King David was a man that's described after uh, he's a, uh, the description of David that we often think about is what? He's a man after God's own heart. And that's something that was noticed about David from the very beginning when Samuel went and he, he chose David uh, from Jesse's family and said, this is the next king of Israel right here. This man, he's a man after God's own heart. Well, the man after God's own heart had a lot of good things that he did in his life. I mean, he slayed a giant. He was a giant killer. He, uh, uh, he was uh, Saul's... Uh, 
uh, harp player. You know, he played music for Saul to calm, calm Saul's nerves, and he, he respected the king, and he, respected, he was a great warrior, a great warrior, great king. But yet David had something that he did in his life that he was so ashamed of, he decided to cover this thing up. And we all know the story, but let me refresh your memory. Uh, the scriptures talk about this in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and, uh, and in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Go read the story. I might leave something out. Uh, Kenan will cover it next week. This will be good homework for, uh, for Kenan's sermon, Psalm 51. It is your sermon, right, Kenan? You already did Psalm 51. You may have another psalm after this one. Uh, but... <laughs> It says in 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 11 that, uh, that the story opens with David, and it's the spring of the year when the kings are supposed to be in battle, and David's not there. He sent out the army to fight the battles, but he didn't go. And what he's doing is he's looking down probably from his palace that sits above everything else in Jerusalem, and he's looking down over the city, and he notices there's a woman bathing. She's bathing because she's purifying herself. She's gone through her cycle, so she's purifying herself. David looks down and notices this. And if you've ever been in third world countries, there's not a whole lot of modesty uh, in those countries. And the proper thing probably for David to have done would have been, been to look away. Remember the story of Job? Job was a guy who said, basically, I've coveted with my eyes, not to look into the, uh, I've coveted with my eyes only to look into the eyes of a young maiden. David wasn't doing that that day. He looked, and he continued to look. He noticed that she was beautiful. Now, when the scripture talks about beautiful, it means beautiful. This is a word that means like incredibly beautiful. And David decides that he wants her. So he sends his men to go get her, and he misuses his power and authority, brings her back, and takes her and lies with her. And she becomes pregnant, sends her back to her home. She becomes pregnant. She sends a message to him, I've become pregnant. He doesn't know what to do at this point, but he begins to cover up what he's done. To this point, she knows about it, he knows about it, maybe a couple of guards know about it, but that's all. So he starts to cover up his sin, and how is he going to do that? He sends for her husband, who's at battle. Now, her husband, Uriah, man, we don't talk about Uriah enough, but Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He was one of David's mighty men. I think it's listed in 1 Samuel chapter 27. One of the 30 mighty men. He was a man of valor, man of integrity. He sends for him. He's in battle. He comes back and he says, if I can get him to go in and lay with his wife, he'll think it's his child. So he brings Uriah back. Uriah meets with David. They talk about what's going on in the battle. Just shoot the breeze a little bit. David says, hey, look, why don't you take a break? Your wife's over there. Why don't you go spend the night at your house? David, uh, Uriah goes back to his house, but he doesn't go inside. He won't do it because his men are out fighting a battle, and he's not going to do something that they're not able to do at this point. So he sets himself apart. David brings him back in the second day. David gets him drunk this time, sends him back. Uriah still doesn't go back in with his wife because he does the honorable thing, the thing of integrity. David calls him back the third day, gives him a note. The note basically says, as he's standing in front of him, he writes out a note for Uriah to his commander-in-chief, Joab. See the man standing in front of you? Take him, put him in the front of the battle. When the battle gets hot and heavy, withdraw from him so that he's killed. Have him killed. Gives it to Uriah. Uriah takes it back. Another sign of his integrity is he didn't even read the note. I probably would have looked at the note and gone somewhere else. Uriah doesn't even do that. Takes the note to Joab. Sure enough, he's killed in battle. At the end of that, uh, as they describe what goes on in battle, uh, David plays it off and says, people are killed in battle every day. Don't let it bother you, Joab. You know, it's okay. Life goes on. He's not displeased. But at the end of chapter 11, there are these words that basically God says that he was displeased, displeased with what happened in David's life, what he had done. It displeased God. 
So the next chapter is about a story about a prophet, Nathan, in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel. And uh, 2 Samuel, I'm sorry. And uh, Nathan, a prophet, comes before David and, 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 and tells him a story. The story's a great story. David doesn't even have the ability to recognize the stories about him until the very end when, when Nathan says, I'm talking about you. You're the one who's done this. And David, for the first time, after doing all of this stuff, murder, misusing his power, adultery, covering it all up, living this lie, it's been nine months now. He brought Bathsheba into his house, took her as his wife after Uriah was killed. It's been nine months. She's going to have this baby. He's been groaning and silent and covering it up and covering it up and hiding it and not looking at it. And Nathan comes, the prophet, and confronts him. And David's response is classic, and I wanted to look at it. And it's in 2 Samuel, verse, chapter 12, at verse 13. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, and these are the words that we all want to hear. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Wow. David deserves to die. Can you imagine if David was running for political office now? <laughs> Which party would want David to be the candidate for presidency? None of us would. This man has done something horrible and terrible. And he meets with Nathan, and he looks at Nathan, and he says, I've sinned. And this is the first time in nine months, really, that he looks at himself, and he goes, I've done something that I shouldn't have done. I've sinned against God. I acknowledge my sin before God. And Nathan looks back at him and says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Do you think those were good words for Nathan to hear? You think those are good words for you to hear today? A lot of you come into this room with all kinds of baggage and sin. A lot of pain. Pain from years of living away from God. Away from his love. Not listening to him. Tuning him out. Running from him. You can't run. You can't go anywhere. He goes with you. I used to tell people when I was younger. that would say, uh, I'm going to go away and find myself. I'd say, you're... You're going to go away and find that you're taking yourself with you because you can't outrun yourself. You're going to always be with you wherever you go. And whatever's there that you've done in the past is going to be there with you in the present. You can't outrun it. You can't hide from it. What God says you can do is you can acknowledge it. The Lord has put away your sin. And he wants to put, he wants to put away your sin just like he did David's. David says this in verse 5 of Psalm 32. Here's what I did. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Let that sink in for just a second. I acknowledge my sin to you, God. I didn't try to hide it anymore. I just came and told you exactly what I've done and who I am and what I've been. I'm acknowledging it to you. I am guilty as charged. I'm guilty. I confess, Lord, these, these are transgressions. These are things I'm not proud of. These are things I'm not happy about. These are things that I've done. These are sins against you. 
and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's incredible that God will do that for us. And that's the essence of Christianity and salvation. When you study salvation, this is what salvation is. What are we saved from? We're saved from the penalty and the consequences of our sin. And we don't deserve it. Just like David didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it either. But God gives it to us. So let that soak in. You know, that's a bad story, what we just heard about David. It's a terrible story. Have you been there in your life? (laughs) I have been there before where I felt like there's no way that I'm going to receive forgiveness. You know, I'd like to remind you also that this was not before David was described as, after, uh, as a man after God's own heart. This was after David had been described as this. This is in the process of living his life out as a man after God's own heart. He stumbled and he fell. And we, can have, a, we have a hard time understanding how God forgives us. Uh, I read a story that Philip Yancey wrote and... and uh, included in a book that he called uh, The Jesus I Never Knew. I don't know if you ever read that book or What's So Amazing About Grace. Great books by Philip Yancey. He's one of my favorite writers because he always makes me kind of look at things from a different perspective. But it's not easy reading, and this is not an easy story. He talks about a prostitute. He says, a prostitute came to me in a wretched state. She was homeless. She was sick. She was unable to buy food for her daughter. And through her sobs and her tears, she told Philip Yancey that in order to make money, she had prostituted her daughter out because she could make more money with her daughter as a prostitute in an hour than she could in a full day's work herself. She had to do this. She had to do it because she had a drug habit that she had to support. Philip Yancey says, I could barely stand listening to this story. I bet you it's hard for you guys to hear that as well. He said, for one thing, uh, he had to report that. That's, that's illegal. And um, he knew that he was going to report it to the authorities. And she'd probably be arrested for it. He says, at the end of this conversation, he asked her, he said, have you ever thought about going to church for help? Have you ever thought about maybe there's, there's hope for you? You should go to church and talk to someone or just go there to, to, to get some help? he said, I'll never forget the look on her face of just pure, naive shock. And she said, the church? Why would I ever go to the church? I was already feeling terrible about myself. And they will just make me feel worse. (laughs) You know, what strikes me about this story is that much like the woman that Philip Yancey encountered, uh, there were a lot of prostitutes in Jesus' day who fled to him, who ran to him. They didn't run away from Jesus. It seems like the worse a person was, the faster they ran to him, not away from him. And I wonder sometimes if the church has lost that gift of being that type of place for people who are sinners. You know, I hear it said all the time that there is, you know, love the sinner and hate the sin. I know there's one person that we're always willing to do that for, and that's ourselves. We're willing to do that for ourselves, but not so much for others. But what's happened to the church in terms of forgiveness? I'm not sure what David felt 
I'm not sure why he felt it, but I know he didn't feel close to God until verse 5. There is a sense in which we, uh, we run from God, not toward him. And that's not what he wants. He wants us to run toward him with our sins, with our failures, not run away. So we've got to do that. We've got to return to that. We all need forgiveness. I heard another story about a man in Spain who uh, was estranged from his son. And uh, the father went looking for his son. And finally, in in a desperate effort to find him, the father puts an ad in a newspaper, uh, in the Madrid newspaper. And it says, basically, all it says is this, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon tomorrow on Saturday. All is forgiven. All. Signed, your father. On the next day... 800 Pacos showed up looking for forgiveness and love from their fathers. 800. That could be you today. You could be that person who's looking for love. You've been estranged in your relationship with Christ, with God. You're not listening to him. You've been silent for a while. He wants you to come to him today, and he wants you to acknowledge your sin and confess your sins. And if you do that, there's a forgiveness that ends up being there. This is scandalous. This is dangerous. This is a free gift that God gives us. It's not something that's earned. It's not something that's deserved. It's a free gift. And all you have to do is acknowledge and confess your sins before him. And he offers to forgive you. You know, I, I, I haven't been in a church too, too often. I've been in a lot of churches that are really good with, with the law. I haven't been in too many churches that are really good with grace. I think ours is. I think ours is a very good church when it comes to grace. But I have a feeling that uh, that if we properly preach grace, that there's a change in people's lives. Years ago, there was a movement. uh, Chuck Swindoll wrote a book uh, about grace. Remember his book, uh, uh, Grace Awakening, I think the name of it was. It was a famous book that talked about God's grace. And uh, there was, he quoted a, a, a guy that I look up to in terms of theological perspective. His name is Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about uh, uh, grace. It's a long, com- a long comment, so I'm going to put it up on the screen for us to look at uh, and read with me. But he talks about this as it relates to forgiveness and salvation. He said, there's no better te- test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this. That some people might misunderstand it. And misinterpret to mean that because you were saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more for the glory of God. If my preaching and my presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to that misunderstanding, then it's basically not the gospel. This charge was brought frequently against Martin Luther. They said, this man who was a priest has changed doctrine in order to justify his marriage and his own lust. He's an antinomian, a person who doesn't believe in the law. And that's heresy. It is the charge that formal dead Christianity, if ever there is such a thing, has always brought against that startling, staggering message. And here it is. That God justifies the ungodly. I would say to preachers, if your preaching of salvation has not been misunderstood in that way, then you'd better examine your sermons again, and you'd better make sure that you are really preaching the salvation that's offered in the New Testament to the ungodly, the sinner, to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, to those who are enemies of God. There's a kind of dangerous element 
about the true presentation of the doctrine of salvation. Do you agree with that? I do. I think that when we properly preach the doctrines of grace and doctrines of salvation, that there's always going to be the danger that you mean I can be forgiven and it costs me nothing? I can be forgiven and all I have to do is confess my sins, acknowledge those to God, and he offers me a free gift that I can't earn and that I can't deserve, that I don't deserve. He paid for me a debt I didn't know I owed, a debt I couldn't pay. God did that for me. The danger when we preach a gospel of grace is this, that people are going to use that and that sin will abound. And if it does, then that's a misunderstanding, too, of what God's grace is. But that's the emphasis. That's what our emphasis should be, the forgiveness of sins that God offers. So what's he talking about here as we wrap up this uh, passage, we round third and head toward home? What Jesus is talking about is, is that in my life, in your life, there was a moment of surrender where I understood that. Do you remember that day? When you came to Christ and you came just as you were, where you uncovered everything and said, Here I am, Lord, send me. Here am I, Lord, take me. Do you remember that day when you were just bare before God? You didn't know exactly what it was going to mean, but you came to Christ with your sins and He forgave you for your sins. That's what you call a moment of surrender. There's also the practice of surrender. And the practice of surrender is basically on a daily basis repenting before God. Martin Luther saw this as the first, uh, the first in his uh, 95 theses that he posted on that door in Wittenberg. Where he said, uh, he said basically, he said, he said, that, uh, he said that, we, uh, that God calls us to a life of repentance. A daily practice of repentance. He says it this way. He says, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be about repentance. And what that means is, is that we keep short accounts with God. That we're not silent as it relates to our sins. And that we're not silent, that we listen to what God says. We live a life that's different on a daily basis. We practice this surrender to God. We come to him, we confess our sins. We're not worthy. We confess our sins before God. And he forgives us our sins. The scriptures say this. They say, Paul said it to Timothy, this is a saying that's trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. If you confess your sins, in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I need that in my life. I need it every single day of my life. I need the forgiveness of God. I'll need it. You know how long I'm going to need it? I'm going to need it for the rest of my life. I'll need it. Every, my best efforts at living for the Lord are stained. They're stained at best. And so I have to keep a short account with God. I have to keep coming before him. And he doesn't reject me. Now there's a warning here. Now, there's two things that God uses as a warning to us. And he talks about um, listening here toward the end of the chapter. And uh, he talks about trouble can come upon you like a great flood. Uh, David gives us all this instruction and in how we can be right with God and how we can have our sins forgiven. And he tells us to listen to it. But he also warns us if we're not going to listen to it, that trouble can come very quickly. It comes like a flood. And, and, uh, and, it can, and, it, and, and that flood can overwhelm you. 
have you ever been in a flood? I haven't. Uh, I've seen them on TV. I remember uh, a few years back, I was in a river. All right, so I was in a river. I had my family with me. Uh, we were whitewater rafting, uh, and I it was uh, on the uh, Olympic section of the Akoi River. And uh, we got all the way to the bottom of that Olympic section, and we got to uh, the fall that's called Gargantuum. You know why it's called Gargantuum? Well, this is pretty big. It's a big, big fall. And I remember there was a raft in that fall at the, at the, just on the other side of the, of the rapid that was doing this. All right? it, was, it was spinning in circles because the water, as it comes over the top of that fall, goes into what's called a hydraulic, where it just goes straight down and starts doing this. So the raft, the other raft was stuck at the end of the fall. And so we had a brilliant guide um, who decided the best thing to do would be for us to T-bone that raft to knock it out. Now, I've got my children with me. Uh, I don't know how old they were. They were young. Uh, we were all in life jackets and everything. But we, we, our guide, you know, we charge on, tally-ho, sick'em bears. And uh, we hit the raft. You know what happened when we hit that raft? We all tumbled out. Everyone, it was like instantaneous, we all were out. You know what happened to me uh, as a father? What's your first instinct as a father? Get my kids and protect them. You know what? I couldn't even protect myself. It was like literally every man for himself. And uh, we were all, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, there's nothing I could do. I'm being swept down the river by this flood of water, and it's so powerful, all I can do is maybe come to the surface and get an, uh, some, a breath of air. And uh, so I'm floating on my back, just doing what they told us to do. You know, you float with your back, with your feet headed down river. And all of a sudden, a rope comes across my chest, and I grab that rope. And I start pulling that rope in. And guess what happened? It took me right into a lifeboat. Because along the rocks, you know, downriver, there were other people standing there that were throwing life ropes out to us and pulling us into their rafts. And that's a pretty good picture, too, I think, of what happens. You know, God, there is a river. There's a flood. There's trouble headed your way. And part of our responsibility as believers is we're, we're, we try to help people. We're trying to throw a lifeline to folks that need a lifeline. Now, I could have said, no, I'm not taking that rope. I'm going to keep floating down this river because I don't need anybody's help. I'll make it on my own. And I might have. I might have drowned, too. Maybe another rope hit me later. But I took that rope because I think God gave me that rope. And the th same thing with our forgiveness. God may be telling you today, I'm throwing you a rope. I'm throwing you a rope, and the rope is the rope of forgiveness. I'm offering you the forgiveness of your sins today. Will you take it? The last part of this uh, message is there's a description of a horse and a mule that's given. And basically, the scriptures say, don't be a mule. And what does that mean? The robe has been tossed. It's out there. Don't be a mule. I heard a story about a farmer who was selling a mule and he had a buyer for the mule. The buyer came to the farmer. Farmer shows him the mule. Farmer gives the mule a command. The mule does nothing. So the farmer reaches over and he grabs a two by four and he hits the mule right between the eyes. The mule complies with the farmer at that point. The farmer looks at the buyer and he says, That's a good mule. But every once in a while, you have to get his attention. <laughs> Scriptures say, don't be a mule. 
Don't be a mule because I'm going to promise you at the end of the day, if you're a child of God's, he'll get your attention. So he offers for us forgiveness of our sins, which is a free gift that we don't earn or deserve. And all we have to do is acknowledge it. You're not hiding anything from God anyway. You're not going to be able to bargain with him. He wants you to come just as you are. We're going to open the tables of communion up right now. And what I want to say about the communion tables is this. I think this is a great time for you to pause. You know, there may be sin in your life that uh, nobody knows about. You need to deal with right now. You've hidden it for a long time. You've struggled with it for a long time. You need to confess it, acknowledge it, take it to God. There may be some things that you need to get right with somebody else. Uh, you know, the scriptures do talk about that as well, that we're supposed to be relationally healthy. If we've sinned against someone, as best we can, we should go to that person and we should acknowledge we've sinned against you. I tell people uh, about the Lord's table. Uh, one of the things I always remember is, if you think you're worthy to take the Lord's table, then you're probably not worthy. You know, if you don't understand your sin and the horror of it, it's easy to look at people that have failed miserably, like a David or like the prostitute we described in that story, and to say, I get it. I understand their need for forgiveness. But the truth of the matter is that we've all sinned. Some of us just don't see our sins as badly as uh, we see others. It's important for us to take a look at that and understand that there's not a day of our lives that will ever go by that we're worthy to come to this table. And so what the table does is it reminds us. It reminds us of the very thing that God's telling us. He died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. Because of what he did, not because of I'm worthy, but because he's worthy, I can partake in this. He died a death for me. My sins were counted to him. He counted to me the righteousness imparted to me. He gives it to me freely. And it's there for you today. You may not have ever, uh, you might not be in a relationship with Christ. If you'd be uh, interested in knowing more about that, all it requires for you is just to, uh, to be honest about where you are, acknowledge your sin, and to accept the salvation that Jesus offers you. It's a free gift. I'll be up here. Some of the pastors and elders will be around the tables. Take a few minutes to think about what you're doing. And then go to the tables, and when, you, and when everybody's finished, we'll have a time where we close out the service.